Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. One of the things the pandemic has taught me is that I do too much. When most of my activities were stripped away, I took the opportunity to try only to add back things that are really important to me, like this podcast. I inadvertently took the advice that Lydie Klotz suggests in his new book, Subtract, The Signs of Less. And now that pandemic restrictions are lifting, I think that many of us are reevaluating how we spend our time. And I found his argument that less really is more compelling. Lydie Klotz is an associate professor at the University of Virginia, where his research is filling in underexplored overlaps between engineering and behavioral science in pursuit of more sustainable built environment systems. He's published more than 70 peer-reviewed articles, and before he turned to academia, he was a professional soccer player. Lydie Klotz, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. Great to be here. So you have a relatively unusual path to becoming a professor, and I think it's really important that we kind of understand where you are coming from so that we can really understand how how you do the work that you do. So can you just walk us through your kind of educational background? It looks like you started as a civil engineer as an undergraduate. Yeah, yeah. And even as an undergraduate, I majored in civil engineering, but I was a, I played soccer too. And so I, I wasn't, <laughs> I mean, the, I was mainly focused on playing soccer and majored in civil engineering because it was something I thought I might like and knew that I'd be able to have a career after soccer. So yeah, I I majored in civil engineering after I played soccer for a couple of years. I um, got a job doing construction management. We were building schools in New Jersey and kind of that thing that the students I talk to now where they're figuring out what they want to do with their lives. I mean, I didn't really do that until I was, I started working and then realized there was no more summer vacations and I was going to be doing this for a long time and I might as well try to figure out how I could do something that aligned with my interests. So, I mean, building schools wasn't bad, but I, um, I had always cared about environmental issues and climate change being the one most relevant in my lifetime. And so I started to think about, okay, how can I align up, line up my careers with, with that type of pursuit? 
and also at the same time started thinking about like what kind of you know there's the the topics that you pursue but there's also the the ways in which you pursue it and i always liked thinking and reading and and learning so i thought maybe there's a way to do kind of sustainability be a professor and teach and and do research and if that was something that i might like to do so you you decided to go did you go and get another degree what happened yeah, I mean, so I, I did a degree, I did my master's degree all online at the University of Washington. The reason I did that was because I didn't want to just dive all the way back into doing a PhD and give up my salary and things. I liked that. And then I did my PhD in architectural engineering at Penn State, which is kind of balanced between architecture and engineering, although it's, it was mostly engineering. And then I went to work at Clemson University was my first job, and now I'm at the University of Virginia. And, you know, since I've been a professor, what I've really been interested in is how these design decisions get made. So civil engineers, architects, anybody who's creating the built environment are making design decisions, but so is so is everybody else in their in their everyday life, as long as they're kind of changing things from how they are to how we want them to be. That's how I got to kind of studying what I'm interested in studying now. I think it's really interesting to hear this journey because now I think a lot of people, especially in the way in which you write your book, would call you a behavioral scientist. I mean, it seems like a lot of the research that you've done has been about tracking human behavior and understanding it. Yeah, um, <laughs> I still feel weird calling myself that. I, I think, uh, I mean, there's certainly a ton of people who know a lot more than I do about behavioral science, but I, I've found that to be a incredibly welcoming community. Um, and I've learned a lot from my my own study of behavioral science, but also some some real leaders in the field who have worked with me on projects. And I've I've been able to learn a lot through them. And it also sounds as if instead of going into a field and then figuring out what, you know, how to use the tools in that field, you've you've seemed to have been driven by questions <laughs> and then, you know, found collaborators and figured out how to answer those questions. And so do you think that's part of your engineering background that you're kind of you've got problems that you want to solve or is that just how you always were? That's interesting. I think you're probably right that it does have a lot to do with the engineering background, right? So like that's the the engineering's a very practical, hey, how do we use this science to do things and it's it's guided by the problems. I also think it's just a little bit of not <laughs> being yeah, like not coloring in the lines, basically. And, you know, having been lucky enough to be in some environments where the the other faculty members allowed me to kind of go where the questions led, as opposed to just worrying about what the disciplinary boundaries were. So you've got this engineering approach, and you're driven by questions, and you're thinking outside the box, and sort of paving your own path. And you've decided, at least for the purposes of this book, and, and it sounds like your current research interests which on which the book is based, you wanted to look at this question of something that we neglect and that a lot of people have made a lot of money pointing out. So uh, <laughs> the examples in your book, Marie Kondo, you know, in terms of decluttering our lives, Tim Ferriss, the four-hour work week, essentially people who are talking about how we can improve our lives by taking things away and making things more efficient. So what first got you interested in this topic from a scientific perspective? Because both of those individuals have made very solid arguments for why we should care about this and have, you know, made millions of dollars in the process. 
Why do you think we need science to tell us that this is what we should be doing? Believe it or not, it goes back even before Marie Kondo and Tim Ferriss, right? It's like, so, so Lao Tzu's famous quote, you know, to paraphrasing here, but basically to, to gain wisdom, you should subtract things every day. So there's always been prophets recognizing that, telling us to subtract in cases where we might otherwise overlook it. And I think, you know, that's really helpful for specific instances. The science, I mean... Part of me as a scientist, I just think it's interesting that, you know, if we learn how our brains are doing this and basically how what's happening is that, you know, our default tendency when we encounter something we want to change is to think about what we're going to add to it. There's a lot of really smart people who don't aren't necessarily behavioral scientists who can benefit a lot just from from knowing that. So I think that, you know, just the knowledge is practical, but at the same time, the, as you know, I'm doing the the work that you do. It's like part of the reason we want to find out how this is happening and how these thought processes are working is that, you know, once we do, we can figure out ways to, to get around them. And, you know, one of the things that we've found with, with overlooking subtraction, for example, is that it has a lot to do with, well, that we're more likely to do it, the more cognitive load we're under, right? So it's kind of like texting and driving. If we're distracted, we're even more likely to use our default tendencies, which is to to add to these things that we want to change to to make better. And so there's an insight there, which is like, okay, well, let's, you know, devote a little more cognitive bandwidth to this or subtract some of the distractions that are keeping you from, from thinking of these options. So that's an example of kind of how the science maybe leads you to something that Marie Kondo or or Tim Ferriss wouldn't. Although, I don't know, (laughs) I can't comment specifically on Tim Ferriss's, but Marie Kondo's advice is actually quite sound scientifically. I mean, she gets to it through a totally different avenue, which is spiritual and, and practice. And it's in one specific context of of tidying, but you know, some of the things that she does, like, has you imagine what the tidied space will look like, does a nice job of kind of overcoming some of the the barriers to to thinking of subtracting or to following through with subtracting anyway. But but I think you made a really great argument for why we need the science, which, you know, obviously okay. when it's a science podcast, you know, it might be surprised by I'm asking you, you know, why science, but <laughs> take it for granted. But I think sometimes it's really important to kind of investigate that as for a lot of people, I think it can be very frustrating to read or listen to or consume Marie Kondo and Tim Ferriss and think, yeah, that's what I should do. But why do I find it so hard? And understanding the conditions that make it more difficult, like as just you were talking, cognitive load is really a great way of, of answering that question and, and making meaningful helping people sort of achieve some of these ideas in a, in a more efficient way. So let's talk a little bit about that. So tell me about the cognitive load idea, because it certainly intuitively would seem that if I'm overwhelmed because I have too many things to think about, like that should be a natural time when I should think about taking things away. And yet it seems like it's the opposite. Yeah, that's a, that should be our follow-up study, right? It's, I'm embarrassed I'd never thought of that before because that it's a kind of self-perpetuating cycle. But yeah, I mean, so the basic issue, right? So some of the, maybe describing some of the experiments because these were... um, Yeah, let's do that. These were fun ones. And my co-author, Ben, actually devised one of these approaches. So one of the ways to induce cognitive load in the experiments is to have people roll their heads while they're thinking about the questions. So basically rotating their heads 
in one direction. And another way is to you can have numbers scrolling up across a computer screen and then people are forced to or asked to, you know, respond when they see the number five while they're doing the the tasks. And so we one of the tasks we used to um kind of demonstrate this overlooking subtraction phenomenon was the grid patterns. Um, and the task is basically to match the grid patterns top to bottom and side to side so that they're symmetrical. So basically you've got four quadrants of the grids and one of the quadrants has extraneous marks in it. And so the, the additive way to solve it is to fill in blocks to three quadrants. The subtractive way to solve it is to subtract blocks from one quadrant. And then when we tell people to do this in the least amount of moves or clicks possible, you know, when they add, it's showing that they're overlooking the, the shorter subtractive option. We, you know, once we showed that people were overlooking subtraction just on their own, we also ran studies where they're trying to solve these problems while these numbers are scrolling across the bottom or where they're rotating their heads. And when, the, when that cognitive load is placed on them, they're even more likely to overlook those changes. So it shows that they're relying on these kind of automatic processes more than, than they otherwise would be, which also shows that these, this um, kind of bias towards adding is automatic as opposed to something that's something that we're deliberating about and then deciding that adding is better. And it seems like you find this bias for addition and this neglect for subtraction in a number of different tasks. So could you give us a, an overview of a few of them, like sort of the different almost domains in which you see this effect? Yeah. I mean, what we wanted to do with our experiments and studies was to kind of span objects, you know, physical things, ideas. So kind of encapsulated in writing or thinking and then also like situations which that's kind of ambiguous but like your your calendars or your your schedules or these you know social things so an example of the objects is uh like we use legos i have a six-year-old son and he's six now but he was two at the time when we started doing this work so we adapted some of his Lego structures and had different ways that people could could solve them. And, you know, there were additive and subtractive options. And you can imagine how that might work. And then um, for the schedules, we made up itineraries. For example, there was one of my favorite ones is this itinerary of, of a visit to Washington, D.C. And it, it was just so obviously overloaded. Um, it was one of the ones we thought, like, there's no way people are going to overlook subtraction in this one. But still that, you know, the way they wanted to improve that itinerary was to add more stuff to it. And it was, (laughs) there were like three and a half hours of travel time around DC, just in the itinerary in this, in this day. And, and then the, for the ideas we used a lot with writing and uh, that was another one that was surprising, right? Because you're talking about these people who've made a lot of money off of advising us to subtract and Strunk and White, one of their most famous pieces of advice is omit needless words, right? It's also one of the most, it's the most assigned book on high school and college syllabi. And so either we're not like internalizing that advice or we're just ignoring it because we gave people summaries and we told them to make the summaries better. And people overwhelmingly added stuff to the, or added words to the summaries. And I mean, I'm saying people, but I'm pretty sure I would have done the same thing in most of these, maybe not the res I write a lot, but in most of them, I probably would have done the same thing. So again, your original question about the domains is we tried to create these experiments that showed it across physical objects, ideas, and, and situations. 
And, you know, the, the COVID, I think, pandemic also highlights this in a way where essentially the first effect of the pandemic was to subtract everything, right? Like your entire, all your plans got subtracted. And what I think a lot of people noticed, you know, a few months in is the Zoom fatigue is the fact that we just started adding and adding and adding to the point where it just became like became so clear that people didn't want to spend so much time on 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 Zoom. And yet, like for a lot of teams, it seems like the solution is not let's have fewer meetings or fewer Zoom meetings, but like let's have another one <laughs> that we, you know what I mean? Like it's just- Where we everywhere. talk about Zoom fatigue. Right. <laughs> yeah. Emergency Zoom about Zoom fatigue. Everybody welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I mean, I, you know, we see that, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a professor at the University of San Francisco. We went online and yeah. And like, you know, there's this there's this feeling that, you know, everybody's sort of overworked and out of touch. And how do you, you know, but it's like the solution always seems to be make yourselves more available, <laughs> you know, have more time with your students. And, you know, I, I feel proud of myself that I kind of intuited this even before I, I read your book. And your book has kind of just highlighted that, that this is an effective tool is that, I just started asking, like, is, is a Zoom meeting really necessary for this? Or is this something that can be answered in a couple emails or in a phone call? You know, and are there ways of kind of subtracting some of this noise? And I and I I feel a huge difference. And I don't know that it's I'm any less in touch with my students because I'm not in Zoom meetings all day long. I can respond to their emails in 10 seconds. <laughs> right. Yeah. And also like thinking about it from your students' perspective, right? I mean, they're facing this same exact thing. So we think we're offering them this great thing where it's an, another Zoom meeting. And meanwhile, they've been staring at a computer for all their classes, plus all their assignments. It's hard. I mean, that's, um, I mean, that's why those people can continue selling books. My friend, Ben, who's a co-author on the study about halfway through the study, and he's a professor too, obviously, halfway through the study, he's telling me, hey, look, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I, I'm, I'm subtracting. And 
He's like, the, they asked me to be on this committee and I said no. And I was like, well, that's better than saying yes, Ben. But I mean, you didn't actually subtract. You, <laughs> that's right. you, just, you just didn't add. Right. So if you really want to subtract, you've got to actually take something away that you're already doing. Remove yourself from a committee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, you talked about the pandemic and that is one thing that I think would be a shame where obviously there's a, a billion things about the pandemic we want to come back afterwards. But some of the subtractions we've been forced to see, we actually like if we like mindlessly add those back in after the pandemic, like, I don't know your perspective, but from my perspective, like conference travel, I'm at 10 to 20% of the conference travel that I've done in the past, I'll do going forward. Cause I've talked to more people from all over the world during the pandemic. And just realized that like the being in the same city and hotel is not important for most of most of that. So that's, you know, that's like one thing I'm not bringing back. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of like more senior people learn over time, because um, you see there's a huge drop off in conference attendance by like senior professors. And I think, you know, I think that that is something that that they, they see there is diminishing returns over time for the amount of cost of like traveling to the conference, etc. And I, and I agree with you. I, I do hope that, you know, we carry some of the lessons with us as the world, you know, g- goes back to whatever normal means or, or the new normal. But I want to also just talk a little bit about what you have found or, or what you wrote about in your book about why the brain is kind of geared towards adding and not subtracting, and in particular in terms of like the reward system. So, so tell us a little bit about why addition feels better or that we think it's going to feel better um, because ultimately subtraction feels great. Right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, why, why we have this mistaken notion that it's better to add then subtract. Yeah. And I mean, given that this is a science podcast, I can make the qualifications that there's a lot of different reasons at play for any given behavior. Right. And mm-hmm. um, so all of these forces, these things are essentially forces pulling in one direction or another, but there's no single, this is the reason, but yeah, I mean, you know, we're wired to acquire, I think is the way I write about it in a book is first and foremost with food, right? We've been able to survive and pass down our genes by making sure we have enough food. And that's not just humans, but that's any kind of of animal. And some of the studies that Stephanie Preston, she's a professor at the University of Michigan and friend, and she she does work on what she calls acquisitiveness. And so it's like, why do people get and keep things? And she she studies it in the context of like hoarding behavior and when that can be like really damaging psychologically. But she also studies pack rats like at the other end of the continuum. And, you know, pack rats will, if you take their stockpile of stuff, they will immediately stockpile again. And I mean, that doesn't seem that weird, right? If if I run out of food, I reorder Amazon Prime talking about changed pandemic behaviors. But, uh, (laughs) But in fact, pack rats are not, they're not planning, they're not deliberating. So this is like a pure instinct that is having them remake their piles. And, you know, we all have that, that kind of acquisitiveness in our own minds and brains. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people who might Marie Kondo their closet once might find that it's not a lasting change, uh, that right. I think it's hard <laughs> to keep that closet condoed. 
And in fact, I think one of the first things that people do after the Marie Kondo is go and buy more stuff. <laughs> you know, now that they have this like empty closet to fill. And and I, I appreciate like how, you know, yeah, how in your book you talk about also like the the sort of timing of the reward, right? Like that when you add something, that reward is immediate. Whereas I feel like when you subtract something, it takes more time to recognize the benefit. Yeah, that's an incredibly astute observation. And also like the visibility of the benefit, right? So, you know, takes more time to recognize the benefit. Plus, by the time you recognize the benefit, like maybe, you know, your clean closet, for example, six months on a clean closet just looks like a clean closet. You know, if somebody else is looking at it, they're not seeing that the reason that is such a nice thing is because you've taken stuff away from it. Whereas, you know, something that's been added to make something better, if it's a you know, you put a really cool sculpture in your living room and people look at it and they're like, oh, that's really neat. And it's it's just like visible evidence that this this change you made, this addition was in fact a good thing. And again, I'm not saying, um, of course, addition can also be good. The problem is that we overlook subtraction. And when you, you know, what when you take something away, whether it's a, um, a, a condoed closet or going back to my friend Ben's example, right? When he takes away the meeting from his calendar, it's no longer there. It's invisible. And his wife actually has a, she's another psychology professor and she has a good workaround. She, the meetings that she takes away, she then like puts back on her calendar with like a little like celebratory in a little celebratory way to remind herself that like she owes that free time to a subtraction that she made. Huh. Oh, that's, I mean, that's the other side of it too, is that we, yeah, we don't, we don't get the gold star for, <laughs> for subtracting, you know, but we get to check something off our to-do list when we did the thing that, you know, the, the meeting or whatever, it's like you, you can, you know, you sort of like, okay, that's done. Yeah. And that's the other kind of, I mean, there's the acquisitiveness. That's a real kind of biological thing that is wired into our brain. And then also that, that desire to show competence, right. Um, that like, that's a fundamental human desire. I mean, that's why my kids are trying to climb around on jungle gyms or mimic adults is that they're trying to display, develop and, and show competence. And it's really hard to show competence by taking something away because it's, in, it then becomes invisible. <laughs> Yeah, I have to say, I laughed in your book when, when you know, a lot of your book, you talk about this, this Lego experience with your son, you know, this bridge that you were building and, you know, you were trying to figure out how to solve the problem and your solution was to add another brick, whereas his solution was to take one away. And of course, that sort of led you to start thinking about this. And then at the end of the book, you talk about his sister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, wait, there's another addition. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's an, yeah, very biologically inspired. That's passing down my genes, right? That's uh... <laughs> Right, right, right. Hardwired for that as well. But yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about sort of how we can reframe subtraction or how we can think about it in a way that doesn't just get forgotten because I think it is really easy like I just, you know, for all these reasons that you've described, it's easy to first think of addition, it's easy to you know, and, and it's hard to remember not to ignore the thing that we are ignoring, right? The bias towards ignoring. Yeah. I mean, that's the best argument for the science, right? Is like the thing that Kondo and Ferris and Cal Newport and all these great people who have these amazing ideas to subtract in some specific contexts, they're not telling us what the fundamental problem is, right? They're, the, the problem is our unclean closet. 
but what's really cool about the science, I think, is that it it shows that the fundamental problem is that we overlook subtraction. And so that like first and foremost, I, I, I know people want like the five step process. And I think there's a four step process in the book, but it's like first and foremost, just just knowing that and knowing and, and understanding that we do that is I think can be incredibly transformative because now we're addressing the right problem. Right. Uh, yeah. I like that. It went from a five step to a four step. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We edited one of the steps out. <laughs> So first and foremost, like knowing that, understanding the science, um, understanding the the forces that are pulling us towards addition, I think that's why it warranted a book. That's why um, I think, you know, why I hope that the first half of the book is helpful. And then once we have that, some of the steps to remind ourselves how to, or to help ourselves do better. You know, we talked about the cognitive load one, right? So it's like, okay, don't, don't be distracted when, when subtracting, don't subtract distracted, but also just realizing that it's more work, I think is one of the, one of the things that's interesting from our, from our findings, you know, so just from the very basic decision-making level. I mean, the problem here is that we think of adding first. The problem is not that it's impossible to think of subtracting. It's just that we think of adding first, it's good enough and we move on. So first and foremost, if we just think a little bit more or, you know, think a little bit differently, you know, one of our studies, we asked people to do that same grid paradigm where everybody was overlooking subtraction and have them do it five times and then say, okay, well, of your five iterations, which one do you like better? Doing it five times made people more likely to subtract. And they, once they did subtract, they realized that they liked it better. We don't encounter a lot of grid patterns in our day-to-day lives, but you can see how that would kind of translate. Um, I mean, my architecture professor friends will make students do a bunch of design iterations and then pick the one that they like best. And, you know, if you're picking some of the later ones, that shows that like the, the repetition was helpful. It's a blunt force tip, right? It's like, keep doing this multiple times, but at the same time, it, it shows how you can get beyond addition with a bit more, with a little bit more thinking. So I think it's a good moment to remind our listeners that Lydie Kloss's book, Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less, is now available at booksellers everywhere. So we talked a little bit about the pandemic. I think probably the biggest change in people, in a lot of people's lives, um, that of course is not true for people who were essential workers or work, you know, who work in the healthcare and, and continue to, to go to work every day. So I want to acknowledge that. But for a lot of people, one of the big changes was no commuting. And that seems like a reward that's easy to sort of recognize. And so I wonder if you have any thoughts about, you know, that that's also potentially very good for the environment, which is also one of the th- reasons I think that you sort of started on the path that you did as this was something that was important. So I wonder if you could tie some of these ideas together. Is there something that we can take away from the pandemic that is actually doable, but that can also aid in the fight against climate change and sort of that? Is it is it commuting or is there something else that you see as potential subtraction that can sort of meet both of those goals? Yeah, I, I mean, so first, like first, a, a funny anecdote and that shows like our desire to keep adding things is like some of the I don't know if you've seen this advice about one of the concerns with the pandemic is is keeping boundaries and so people are like oh now we don't have our commute to like keep our boundaries so we recommend that you go like simulate a commute outside and you're like walk for (laughs) half an hour and it's like 
okay, but I mean, what are the you just like, set some boundaries? <laughs> yeah, totally like rethinking the time. Uh, so that, you know, additional evidence that it's really, really hard to subtract stuff. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, the, the commuting has to be the, the number one kind of potential for the climate here. And it's not just, I mean, it's, it's commuting that wasn't being, that wasn't helpful in the first place. Right. And so, you know, we see that the, I haven't looked recently, but for a while, the carbon emissions were actually trending in the right direction for like the first time in industrialized society's history. Um, and it was because of the reduced commuting, a little bit of the reduced industrial production, but mainly the reduced commuting. I think to, to blindly just return to that would be such an incredible lost opportunity. You know, it, it is a nice illustration of, you know, how hard it can be to subtract something that is so obviously better once it's subtracted. And again, I'm not saying the pandemic's better, but who can argue with spending those two hours a day for some people with your kids or just exercising or doing something else instead of sitting in a car? Yeah, well, podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we missed the commute. <laughs> <laughs> no. I thought podcasts have done well. They they have. No, no, no. We, I mean, there was an yeah. initial drop off as people had to essentially reset when they listened to podcasts. And then slowly they've they've come back uh, and, and, and people have, have recognized that podcasts are useful, even if you're not on a train. Yeah, I'm uh, noticing way more people. <laughs> listening to podcasts everybody should listen to more podcasts yeah we yes. add, them, add that to I, add that do not <laughs> subtract any podcast listening i've actually there's research showing that listening to podcasts can help you create boundaries around your work that's right and help you subtract other things <laughs> yeah yes yeah no that is true i i mean i don't want to in general knowledge is a good thing to add so let's let's I, I want to end with a question for for your future. You know, as you as you think about where this research is heading now, I mean, you've made a really excellent case in the book and in your body of work that we first off do neglect subtraction, that that's not something that we think about first. And yet that the benefits of subtraction really seem to come or, or, or counter this kind of bias towards addition. So what's next for you? What where where is your is your journey going to take you next? Since uh, the way it's come this way is pretty unpredictable. Yeah, I mean, what I what I really like about this, I mean, it's it's definitely my favorite research I've ever done, and like the most valuable research I'd, I've ever done in terms of, in my view, and I think in pretty much everybody else's view too. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if thirty years from now I was still like, yeah, I never, I never quite beat that subtraction stuff because what's so cool about it is it's just like this is such a fundamental thing that you know we encounter all the time where it's like you're you're thinking about how you want to change or improve something and it's showing that we're neglecting one of our most basic options and that to me is the biggest evidence that there's untapped potential right is there's this whole basic category of things that left to our own devices we we overlook so i i will continue pursuing these like trying to understand the these decisions or these these thinking processes that are at the basis of like how we design or how we try to to make things better but i i think that we've still got quite a bit to of work to do on the on the subtraction stuff um i mean there's neat questions about like cultural differences and we didn't find any in our in our studies but i do think that you know kind of understanding if there are groups uh, that are better at this and whether it's, you know, experts or cultures or 
maybe kids, I think that would help us understand kind of a little bit more about why this is happening and, you know, learn more about the people who are able to see it. And so I think, you know, a combination of continuing to look for basic questions about how we create our world and also continuing to explore subtraction. Yeah. And I, I think it, you know, it, it could not be more important when there's like a massive garbage patch in the Pacific Ocean um, and elsewhere. And, you know, the next big problem that we're going to face, which we are already facing after this pandemic is climate change and that consumption plays a huge part in that. So, yeah, I look forward to book two. Lighty Klotz, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Yes. Thanks for having me, Andre. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.